Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone. It's Nick, and welcome to this week's episode of Scale Up Your Business. Now, today, I'm going to get into a topic which, you know what, I, I get asked all the time. So so the number one question that people reach out to me um, on LinkedIn and, and through the Scale Up Your Business community on Facebook and those sort of things is, how can I raise money for my business? How can I increase the value of my business by getting someone to invest in it? And let's be clear, Scale Up is absolutely about leveraging finance. It's about leveraging investment to be able to, to get your idea out there to more people, to solve more problems, to, to scale your business. And I get asked all the time to go out there and actually help with fundraising, but it's not something I do. I used to do that a while back. I tend to spend most of my time now advising on business strategy of growth and scale up. And that is about opening some doors to funding. But quite often than not, I think sometimes that whole world gets a bit of a bad rap and everyone's raising their Series A or their Series B to try and get their idea off the ground. And I'm still very much in favor of of the value of companies and and how you can create value with investment, but also being prudent about how you do invest, what money you get access to. So today we are going to get into a topic that I haven't covered as much around this same area, which is valuation. And I'm absolutely delighted to have on the show today with me, Tim Collar. Now, Tim Collar works as a partner at McKinsey and Company. Now, now they are, if you haven't heard of McKinsey, they're up there with Boston Consulting Group, Accenture, Deloitte. They're probably one of the leading, if not the leading global management consultancy firm in the world. And Tim advises clients on strategy of value creation. He's also the lead author of the best-selling book on value creation, which is called Valuation, Measuring and Managing the Value of Companies. Now, this book has been read by executives, investors, bankers, students. I think there's something like more than 800,000 copies have been sold. And there's a new edition coming out in June. It's the seventh edition. So we'll make sure we have some links in the show notes so that you can get a copy of that if you're interested. But the main topic we want to get into today is how executives, business owners, entrepreneurs, investors should be thinking about valuing companies in light of the current pandemic that we've just gone through, but but also the economic environment. And is there a, may, a way of making sense of valuation? And what I love about the conversation with Tim, he's, he's a super experienced, intelligent guy around this. I mean, this has been his life's work. And I asked him, I said, you know, do we need to be thinking differently about business valuations in light of what's just happened with COVID-19? And his response to that is the fundamentals of a good business, a business that is so valuable and so awesome that others want to buy it, they are the same. It hasn't changed. Now, of course, when market conditions change, the value of a business changes, it goes backwards. Um, but equally, there are some companies that fly when the market environment is challenging because they're solving a very clear, crisp problem for their customers. So today's episode is, and I'm going to call it as it is, it is technical. It's very detailed. It's kind of going back a little bit into my world of private equity when I used to sit around board tables with multiple spreadsheets. 
But let's be clear. A lot of the reasons why you are listening to this podcast is that you want to scale your business to something that is valuable and sellable so that you you can potentially make a lot of money one day, a, a sum of money which creates freedom and builds wealth from what we call a capital event. And that comes from creating a business so valuable, as I said, that others want to buy it. So listen intently today to these things. There are principles that we are going to get into. There are tips and there are strategies of how you should be thinking of growing and scaling your business to make it as valuable as possible. So if you are on that runway, if that's where you want to be, um, then this is going to be the episode for you. So before Tim joins us, um, just another shout out. If you haven't joined the Scale Up Your Business community on Facebook, please do so. As I said, it's a great community, some fantastic people in there offering tips and insights. And lastly, if you haven't subscribed to Scale Up Your Business, please do so because it very much helps the channel. So that's it. Um, As I always say, be grateful, be brave, have faith and show up. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business, Tim Collar. Hi, everybody. It's Nick here, and welcome to another episode of Scale Up Your Business. I am delighted to have with me today Tim Collar. Now, Tim Collar works at McKinsey & Company, which is the leading global management consultancy firm in the world, and he advises clients on strategy and value creation. He's also the lead author of the best-selling book on value creation, which is called Valuation, Measuring, and Managing the Value of Companies, which has more than 8,000 copies being sold to investors, bankers, students, and executives around the world. So, Tim, welcome to Scale Up Your Business. Thank you, Nick. It's, hopefully, it's, it's 800,000, not just 8,000 copies. <laughs> oh, right. Yes. We were just talking about whether who's had more coffee this morning. I think I started at five <laughs> and you started at three. So you're winning. So, yeah, sorry, 800,000. Yes, well, a, a lot of copies. So, you're um, the preeminent expert on this stuff, and it's great that you're on the show because we haven't really got into valuation a lot. We talk a lot about how do you scale a business, how do you grow it, and obviously a lot of the people who are listening are wanting to exit their business at some point, but uh, never mm-hmm. the kind of mechanics around that stuff. So do you want to kind of just give us, firstly, you know, your, your story, your background, um, how you've got into this stuff, and obviously how long you've been working with McKinsey and all those sort of things? Sure. Well, thank you. Um, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, I've been with McKinsey for 33 years. Uh, and um, I joined when we were just starting up our corporate finance practice. So I was one of the founding members of that. Um, what happened originally was when we, uh, when we started the practice, there was a, a lot of activity around uh, uh, hostile takeovers around the, around the late 80s. Um, and uh, we felt we needed to understand better what was going on and why people were paying these prices and what it all meant. Um, so um, we started up the practice. And one of the things that um, we de- needed to do was to make sure that all the McKinsey consultants around the world were using the same methodology uh, and the same techniques for valuing companies, uh, everything from philosophical to technical issues. Uh, and um, so we wrote a handbook the three ring binder from McKinsey consultants, uh, just to make sure everybody sort of is a teaching device. And someone said, well, you should show it to some publishers. And we did. And a couple of publishers bought, uh, liked the idea. And, um, we chose one of them and we published the first edition that came out, um, 1990. Um, 
and uh, we're about to come out with the seventh edition now, uh, 30 years later. Wow. So this has been your life's work, so to speak. Well, the life's work is really more about applying this and working with clients. Uh, you know, this is sort of more everything. We learn a lot from working with our clients and, and seeing what issues they face. And that's how the book has evolved over time is, is sort of responding, if you will, to the to the issues of the of the companies that we're serving uh, and, and, and also what's changing in the world uh, that needs to get reflected in the book. Yeah, well, I want to get into some of those bits today, if that's okay, because I think definitely the technology piece needs to come into it, because obviously when yeah. you first started writing this book, <laughs> we hadn't have gone through yeah. what we've been through over the last, you know, decade right. or more. So so mm -hmm. let's start with that if we can. So how has valuation changed? So if you go back to when you first first wrote the first edition to where you are now, has the mechanics or the core mechanics of valuation changed over that time? No, they haven't changed at all. The core, the core mechanics of valuation are how you and how you think about value. Ultimately, any investment is going to be valued by the cash flows that you think it can generate. Um, and without those cash flows, investments aren't worth anything. So ultimately, you have to think about the cash flows. And what ultimately is dr drives the cash flows of a company is the combination of how fast you think it can grow its revenues or what what level its revenues can reach. Uh, and what kind of return on capital it earns. Um, and so if it doesn't earn a, a very high return on capital, no matter how fast it grows, it won't be worth very much. Um, on the other hand, you've got some slow growing companies that earn very high returns on capital that therefore generate lots of cash flow uh, that are also have high valuation. So it's really the combination of the two that drives value uh, and that drives the, uh, uh, the, that drives the cash flow and drives the value of the company. So if we're looking at, and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, if you're looking at some companies these days that are not profitable yet, they might be generating mm -hmm. some cash, but they've got big investments in technology or infrastructure or whatever else, um, and they're getting these quite massive valuations, and there's some we can obviously mm -hmm. reference through this. Mm -hmm. What's your view on that? Is that is that still considered accurate, even though it's, it's about what they can potentially drive versus what they are driving right now? Yeah, it, it, it is about the potential and not what they're doing right now. Um, and if you go back to the dot-com bubble, we sort of saw the same kind of thing. We saw it recently with the trend of what we call unicorns, these companies with billion-dollar valuations and, 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 and no profits. Um, just as in the dot-com bubble and with some of the unicorns, sometimes those valuations are uh, incorrect um, or you know, because the market isn't is isn't perfect, and sometimes it it it, get, it gets it right. Um, the 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 way we think about it is once again we go back to the question of um, revenues and cash flows and return on capital. And so, if you've got a business that so the fact that these companies can be worth billion dollars even though they have no profit, uh, what the way the way to think about it is what can their how big can their revenues be when they become mature what's the market that they're in what's it going to look like um how profitable can they be when they get mature what kind of margins can they earn what kind of return on capital can they earn is it going to be a capital intensive business or a capital light business like a um uh, a software company uh, and then we work backwards from that so if we say, okay, this could eventually reach to be a $10 billion company, 
you know, with a 20% profit margin, um, then, and, and, and a, you know, uh, 40% return on capital, we work backwards from there without really knowing what the path will be between now and then. Because uh, what really matters ultimately is how big it can get and how profitable it can be, not what it looks like right now. Obviously, that's very different for a company that's growing at uh, three or four percent or five percent a year. Uh, at that point, we, you know, we we pretty much know what the economics are going to look like. So, but for these uh, for the unicorns, we, we we have to sort of imagine what they might look like when they when they do become mature. Uh, and by doing that, also you can begin to differentiate and think about which of these unicorns really where that valuation is potentially correct, and which one which ones it's not correct. And that must be the difficult piece because because as you're talking, I'm thinking back to my PE stuff, and I'll get into some of that a bit mm -hmm. later. We can pass that around, but you know you've got to have a, a quotient or some sort of calculation of risk here, don't you? I mean, because the potential is great, but the potential is not here right now, and there's a lot of things, particularly in our fast changing world, that could but could impact that. Yes, I mean, and that's the other thing when you you, you asked one uh, at one point we. You, know, you asked about the accuracy of the valuation. Now, the, 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 the challenge is, is that the, the valuations of these companies, is, of any company, is very, not very accurate. They do change from all the time as new news comes in, as we learn more about the companies. Uh, and um, for these companies in particular, where there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty, uh, you may think, well, yeah, there's a chance that this business could grow to $10 billion in revenue. Uh, there's a chance that this business may uh, not, you know, turn into anything. It may not never become profitable. Uh, may flame out. The market may not. Customers may not buy the product, or it may not be as profitable. Uh, and so the valuation ideally would reflect the the differences in the likelihood of those of those different outcomes. So the second element of what we do when we look at a unicorn is not just sort of try to imagine how big it could be and how profitable, but we try to think about what's the probability of success, what's the probability of failure, uh, et cetera. Um, in, in, in terms of, uh, of a transaction taking place, a transaction has to take place at a single price. So a way to think about that is to think about a weighted, you know, a weighted average of the different probabilities of the different events occurring. However, um, we often think that for pr managerial purposes, um, having a single estimate is not as useful as just knowing what the values would be under different scenarios and how do you manage the business best to create the, the, the biggest amount of value. So it depends what your purpose is. And I think sometimes executives get caught up too much in a single point estimate uh, as opposed to understanding what sort of scenarios of future performance fit with what kind of valuations. Yeah, and th and that's the piece that I think I was alluding to when I when I asked the question first off around the valuations over time, because as you said, what what you're valuing the companies on hasn't changed, but that probability mm -hmm. predictability must be the bit that's that's um, creating more uncertainty. Just because, as I said before, the pace of change and the way things have evolved, certainly in the last decade. Yeah, and I think uh, and when you're thinking about one of these companies, as as you get more evidence that it's going to be successful, it's often more the probability of success that changes that increases the value, um, as opposed to, you know, how successful you think it might be. 
uh, or vice versa. You, as you learn more, as time passes on, as more information becomes available, um, you know, people realize that, oh, maybe this thing, the chances of it succeeding as, as much as we thought uh, become lower and the value declines as a result of that. Yeah. And as you said, it's a point in time when the transaction happens. So it has to be at one price. So can we talk a little bit about the different ways of looking at this? So if I think back to a couple of the, the transactions I've been involved in, particularly in the PE space, private equity space, there's been more of a fixation there on um, a multiple of EBITDA, profit mm -hmm. and profit. Um, to, to the point, and again, it may be my experience with, I've worked with a number of PE firms, it may be my experience with those ones, but they're very much looking at the certainty around that level of value. Mm -hmm. And then you've got these other dynamics which are coming in now, usually at an earlier stage business where it might be a valuation based on annual recurring revenue. So can you just explain the difference between, if you, if you were posed with those two different dynamics, would you, would you approach them differently? Obviously, they're, they're, they're different ways of calculating a number. Well, first off, um, well, you know, if you do have a business that's going to be going into the market um, uh, and, you're, and you're thinking about multiples, et cetera, one of the things that we find, we do use multiples in our, in our, in our work as well. We try to understand why the multiple, but we try to understand why the multiples are what they are. And multiples are a good way of comparing companies that are similar to each other, uh, and using getting a market-based market market valuation based on that. But what we find is that multiple multiples have to be used fairly carefully, right? Uh, you you mentioned sort of common multiples, enterprise value over EBITDA. Uh, what matters is making sure that you compare. If you're bringing a company to market, you don't want to. You want to compare the company to other companies that not only compete in the same industry but also have the same performance. So what we find, once again, is that if you if you are trying to use multiples properly, you have to look at companies which have the same um, growth prospects. And the same returns like capital, the same things that drive cash flow. Uh, and that's why oftentimes executives will come to us and they'll say, well, we think our multiple is too low because, you know, here's companies, you know, X and Y that have multiples that are uh, substantially higher than ours. And we'll look at them and we'll and look at their results and say, well, the reason your multiple is lower is you know, even though you're competing with them in the same industry, they're expected to grow at 7% and you're only expected to grow at 3% let's say, or your margins are, you know, their margins are 20%, yours are only 12%. Uh, so you deserve a lower multiple. Uh, and, and, and usually we find that the market's pretty smart uh, about, at least on a relative basis, about distinguishing companies based on their performance. Companies uh, in the same industry that have faster growth prospects, that have higher returns on capital, typically will end up with having higher multiples uh, than those that don't. So the market sort of mimics what you know the, the the cash flow process that we go through but because it ends up with the same drivers as ultimately mattering uh growth and return on capital and those are the things that companies really do need to worry about um now you talked about companies with um recurring revenues uh, versus those that are obviously it's just easier if a company already does have a stream of revenues and you can sort of identify uh, who their customers are, what the you know, how big the customer base is growing, what kind of market share they can achieve, et cetera. Uh, so an existing market versus a market that is 
fairly new where you don't yet know exactly what the revenue stream is, is going to be um, and, and what the competitive environment is going to be, how big the market will be, uh, certainly makes it more difficult. But the process is the same. It's just that the, that level of uncertainty is much higher if it does if it's a company that doesn't have uh, you know there's no existing market, no existing revenue stream, um, uh, those kind of things. It's just you have to you have to be more creative and thinking about it, and you have to assign a much higher level of uncertainty uh, to the valuation when 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 that does happen. And is that done? Is that last point done as a range then? As a as a you know as a range of uncertainty as a percentage. Yeah, that's the way we typically would think about it as a range. Now, ultimately, if a company is going to going to go public, there has to be a single number at which it goes public, right? <laughs> um, uh, and that's but that's determined, you know, by the investors uh, as much as anything else. We've seen recently um, plenty of examples where in the private market come before companies went public that some of the valuations very high companies with valuations 20 30 40 50 billion dollars uh, where there was a lot of uncertainty about the business model in the private market before they go public uh, there aren't that many investors involved so you if you all you have to do is convince a handful of investors that a company is worth a lot and, and it can have a very high valuation, right? Uh, when a company goes public, though, you've got a much uh, larger group of investors. And, and nowadays, uh, most of the investors, the institutional investors are, are pretty sophisticated uh, and, 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 and are, and are going to be skeptical. And, and so you have to convince, if you want to achieve that kind of valuation, you have to do a good job of convincing them uh, not only about the about the size and the profitability of the market that you're in, they're not going to just take, you know, a, a, a nice concept or a nice story. They want to. They want. They're going to think about, geez, how big can this be, and is this really a profitable business? Is this a business that can earn a earn, earn a high return on capital? Is this a business that can have sustainable cash flows? Uh, is there more upside or downside risk? Uh, so that's I think why we've seen a lot of skepticism lately by in. Uh, by the public market, um, uh, in terms of pump companies going going uh, going going public, um, uh, relative to sort of what happens sometimes in the in, in the private market. Yeah, no, indeed. Well, most of my experiences is more in the private market and and specifically the mm -hmm. mid market. And I've I've been um, in situations where you might have seven people interested. Seven, let's say, let's call it PE firms for argument's sake. Seven PE mm -hmm. firms interested in one business. And then, um, for whatever reason, there's a view on what the value of the business should be, and then one gets deal heat, and says, "You know what? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to care about that. I'm just going to pay whatever." <laughs> right, right. That uh, that's exactly what happens. Uh, that's why acquisitions are so difficult. Right? Is that it? Only you know the buyer almost by definition is the one who is the most optimistic, uh, or, or gets deal heat, as you mentioned, right? really wants to get a deal done and is willing to pay the highest price, um, then they have to work hard to figure out a way to justify that price because eventually, the, you know, they'll either have to resell it to someone else and hopefully find someone who's willing to pay a high price or if they go back into the, into the public market, uh, then, the, then they're going to have to convince uh, a large group of sophisticated investors that the business is worth something uh, more and, and typically that comes from improving the performance, not just from hoping that they're all of a sudden they'll be getting a higher value for it. 
Yeah, interesting. All right, I want to go a little bit more um, practical just for some of the people here who are probably listening to this and thinking, okay, this sounds interesting. How do we how do we actually do this? So let's assume we've got a business which is, let's say it's it's a small business. It's making say twenty million dollars and it's making four to five million in profit, and you were brought in to do a valuation of that business. Now we can talk about sectors and we can be hypothetical about that as well. But what's mm-hmm. the starting point? If you were given that brief, Tim, what would you first come in and want to know? Where would you start and how would you build the valuation in a practical way? Right, right. So in a practical way, the first thing I'd want to do is look at not just the income statement, that, but the balance sheet as well. So my first question is always, okay, I've got if I've got, let's say, $5 million in, in, in profits on a $20 million uh, revenue base, that's that's a 25% profit margin. That sounds pretty good, right? Mm. Uh, uh, the question is, how much capital is it taking me to do that, right? So if it's taking me, if I've got $50 million of capital, maybe it's got a, maybe it's uh, uh, got, a, you know, a very expensive factory uh, or something like that uh, in order to uh, to generate that $5 million of profit, that means I'm only earning a 10% return on my capital, right? Uh, on the other hand, if it's a very capital light company, uh, maybe it only has $10 million invested in, in, in the business in terms of the, the physical assets, because maybe it only has, you know, office equipment and some computers and stuff like that. And then it's earning a 50% return on the capital, right? Uh, and then the question is, so then that, that allows me then to, to translate that into cash flows, right? So what matters is not the profits, it's the ability to translate those profits into cash flows. So as I grow the business, right, if I've got a $50 million of capital tied up, and if I grow at 10% a year, and I suppose I have to increase my capital at 10% a year, that means I have to, you know, for every Every, uh, if I'm going to grow at 5%, I'm going to have to spend five, um, excuse me, I'm going to grow at 10%. I'd have to increase my capital by $5 million. That's going to eat up all my profits. So I'm not going to have anything left over for the shareholders, right? Uh, whereas if I'm earning a uh, 50% return on capital, uh, I've only got $10 million tied up and I grow at 10%. I've only got uh, to invest $1 million back into the business. And so I've got $4 million left over. For the shareholders, right? So you can see that the cash flow that's generated by this company, which makes $5 million of profits, is very different depending upon the return on capital that it's going to achieve. But one thing, the first thing I always want to do is understand how much capital it takes to run this business now and as it grows, right? Uh, that's number one. Uh, and, and then the second thing is obviously how fast can it grow? Can it grow at 5%? Can it grow at 10%? Um, uh, you know, what are the, what, what's going to drive how fast it can grow? How fast is the market growing that it participates in? Um, uh, what's its market share? Can it gain market share? Uh, usually pretty skeptical and usually investors are pretty skeptical about gaining market share. Um, every, every company thinks that they're going to gain market share, but obviously they, they all can't, right? Um, uh, and, and so, um, you know, what really matters is, you know, how fast is the growing? How fast is the market growing? So we look at how fast is the market growing? What's the, re- what's the margin? What's the return on capital? Uh, and based on that, we project out the cash flows, um, uh, you know, project out an income statement, project out a balance sheet, turn that into cash flows, figure out how much cash flow it's going to generate. 
And then we can discount that back at some cost of capital, typically, you know, let's say eight or 9% to come up with the value of the business. Uh, and then we'll, and then what we'll do is we'll triangulate that with multiples, right? Then we'll look at sort of, okay, are there companies out there that are listed that are, you know, similar, both in terms of the industry that they participate in, as well as their performance and their potential? Uh, and we'll see what the multiples tell us as well. And uh, oftentimes we'll come up with numbers that are fairly similar, and that makes us pretty comfortable. Uh, if we come up with different numbers, then we need to dig deeper to figure out why those numbers might be different. Okay. And what about mm -hmm. some of the intangible things? So brand or the people, um, the culture of the mm -hmm. business, some of those unique characteristics. Mm -hmm. Do you add an, do you mm -hmm. add an overlay to the valuation for those things, or is it just not put into the into the calculation? Well, it, yeah, it's a good question because people often ask about you know the you know there's, uh, there's often talks about talk about the intangibles, right? And 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 and, and you know how important intangibles are, and and the economy has become more more intangibles are becoming more and more important, right? If you look at you know, software companies, we don't have, you know, the the, bet, the the most profitable companies, the biggest market values for companies are often companies with lots of intangible value. Either they are uh, because, you know, either they're the, the tech companies because they have brands or because they they have, you know, customers that are sort of locked into them, uh, if you will, because of uh, uh, everyone wants to use the same search engine, for example. Uh, or they're consumer product companies, which, you know, where we're willing to pay a high price for a lot of these detergents because it's got a brand that we trust it has been around for a long time. Uh, or pharmaceutical companies where there's a lot of intangible value because of the intellectual property and the patents that go along with that, right? But ultimately, those, those things cannot, you can't value the intangibles separately and then add them to the cash flows. It's the intangibles that create the cash flows. And so if you were to add on the intangibles, you'd be double counting the effect of those intangibles, right? So the intangibles are important because they go into your thinking about the cash flows. If I'm looking at a consumer product company and it's got very strong brands, uh, then I'm more likely to project higher growth and higher returns on capital than a company with weak brands. Uh, but ultimately it's the brand it's, it's the strength of the brand. It's the strength of the intellectual property uh, that uh, drives the cash flows. It's not an additional value on top of that. No, okay, I get it. I've got an example in a second I'll give you, but because uh, I suppose it also comes back to, and I was always taught, if you like, or suggested that you know, if we buy a company, if I've got a company, I want to do a, a roll up and buy some other ones and put them all together and create a group, that I'm not necessarily paying for the value that I'm going to add to it, I'm paying for the value of that business at a point in time. But that's a difficult one, right? That's a difficult one. Because the, the example I'm going to give you, I think was a few years ago where I believe it was Adidas who bought Reebok and bought mm -hmm. Reebok as a business that had fallen down. In fact, if you did it just by balance sheet or, or normal valuation, it wouldn't be worth much, but they paid a lot of money for what they potentially could do with it. And obviously they pivoted towards CrossFit and, and, and repositioned the brand. How, how do you advise, if someone comes to you and sort of says, you know, there, there's a point where they probably look at your valuation, Tim, and go, yeah, I kind of get it, but you know what, I'm just going to pay more because I believe in this business and I can do more with it. Did you get that much? Because that, <laughs> that's an interesting one. Well, and, 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 and that's, you know, 
we do a lot of work with companies on acquisitions. Um, and what we really are trying to do is to, is, yeah, is to value the company two different ways, right? So when we look at an acquisition, we say, what is it worth under the current management team doing what they're doing right now, right? What kind of cash flows do we think that they'll generate? Um, and then we look at it and we say, okay, what would it be worth if we were running the business and we were doing things differently? Um, maybe we would, you know, be able to, you know, when a, when a, when a, um, a large software company buys a small software company, small software companies often don't have distribution cap, don't have, you know, ability to distribute their product very easily because they don't have big sales forces, right? So a big tech company buys it and they all, and they can, they can distribute it more successfully so they can accelerate the growth, right? Uh, of, of, the, of that particular product. So they're adding additional value by, by making it bigger. Or, you know, maybe the company is better at cost cutting. Uh, and so we're looking at that. We'll look at the company and say, well, these guys, these guys have so much overhead. Uh, their menu, you know, their factories aren't very efficient, et cetera. So, you know, if, if, if we take this company over, we can reduce their costs and their margins are going to go from, you know, 7% to 12%. Uh, and then we value it based on that. And so then you have to two numbers. One, what is the value to us? And what is the value as they're currently operated? Uh, and that gives you sort of a range of negotiations, if you will, um, to, uh, to, 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 to use so that you make sure that one, in order to, in order to compete, in order to have a competitive offer, we have to pay more than the value that it's worth to the current management, uh, based on the current management, but, but, but we can't pay the full amount that it's worth to us uh, if we make all these improvements because then we're giving all the value to the sellers, right? So hopefully we end up with a situation where the value to us as we're going to operate it um, is, is still more than the price that we have to pay. Uh, and and the, usually those things occur when, you know, we've got something unique uh, to, to, that we can add to that thing that not everyone else can add, right? Uh, and we're not in a bidding war with, you know, other buyers who might may get deal fever or be irrational and pay too high of a price. That's the okay. big challenge with acquisitions. I like the um, art and science of this, Tim. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it is. A, well, it is, isn't it? There's a piece where you can you can yeah. look at all sorts of different methodologies and, as we said before, equations to get to something which will give you a certain part of the puzzle. But the value of a company is really going to be dependent on, you know, who's buying it and kind of to some extent right. what, they, what they can do with it. Right. So that's one of the lessons we always talk about is that uh, we call it the better owner concept, right? The value, essentially, the value of a company or, 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 or an asset or whatever is there is no inherent value in a particular company or business. Uh, the value depends on who's running that business uh, and how they're running it, what their incentives are, those kind of things. Yeah, I get it. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about where we are now. So as we record this, we're in COVID-19 pandemic. Things are, mm -hmm. you know, from what I'm looking at there today, things are looking like they're on the up a bit. Um, but let's mm -hmm. talk about that in, in line with valuations of companies and, and also what people can be thinking about as, as the market improves and the environment improves. So firstly, what's happened to valuations? And again, I'm, I'm sure this is going to be a broad answer in terms of sectors and whatever else, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic and what are you projecting mm -hmm. 
over the next period of time post when things start to become a bit more certain mm -hmm. again? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't make direct projections, of course. Uh, that would be um, that would be difficult to to, to do. But I, we can. There's a couple of things we can think about. One is, um, you know, the market. You know, if you look at at an index like the S and P 500, um, which is the one of the indexes that people most often look at, is one of the broader market index. But it is mostly made up of large, large companies, right? Um, the S and P 500 dropped by about 30 percent or more uh, from its from its uh, peak near the beginning of the year. And is now back up to you know where say say it's down ten or fifteen percent relative to its peak. Um, one way to think about it is just by saying, okay, um, is that reasonable given sort of what the future might look like, right? And let's suppose we took a scenario where we said that you know the profits of the S and P five hundred are going to be half what they were for twenty and twenty and twenty twenty one. Okay, um, which is a pretty big drop, obviously, 50%. We've never seen something like that before. But that's only two years, right? And the market is valuing the business for its life, right? And then let's assume even then that the, when, they, when, the, when the profits do come back, they're permanently 5% lower than they otherwise would have been, okay, just as an example. Uh, so that's a pretty negative scenario, right? Uh, if you do the math on that, it would suggest that Share prices should be down somewhere between, you know, seven and thirteen percent, right? Which is about where share prices are right now. Um, so, so the decline, or the some people are looking at the market as, you know, why hasn't it? Why did it come back up? Well, you know, it, it often, you know, in in a period of uncertainty, you see a massive decline very quickly as people panic and people, you know, try to get out, right? And you know, different selling programs come into play. And then it pops back up, and and now it pops back up to something which is probably more reasonable. Um, uh, just you know, sort of thinking through different scenarios for the future. The key to keep in mind here is that the market is valuing the business over a very long period of time, you know, 20, 30 years. And you know, if the if the economy is really bad and profits are really low for say two years, um, that's only two years out of a very long period of time even though the current ones, uh, so the impact will be muted. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing that you mentioned was the, 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 any index like the S&P 500 is composed of different sectors. And each of these sectors is differently affected by what's going on. And the interesting thing about, um, in the U.S. at least, the S&P 500 is, is an index of, of large U.S. companies, right? And over the last 30 years, the composition of that index has changed dramatically. And now the index is dominated by large tech companies, large pharmaceutical companies, even growing, even newer pharmaceutical companies, uh, medical device companies, uh, consumer packaged goods companies. All of these companies have very high valuations, right? But they are also companies that are less affected by the pandemic. Um, in, in many ways, you know, some of the tech companies have actually benefited, um, uh, on the one hand, uh, the pharmaceutical companies, people still need to take their, take, you know, have, take their, take the drugs that they've been using, right? So demand has gone down a little bit and there may be some upside from some new drugs that they're developing. Consumer packaged goods often, especially when it comes to things like 
uh, food and cleaning products and those kinds of things. The demand hasn't changed very much for those kinds of things. Cleaning products have found way up. So the sectors that are most resilient are those that are most are, are the are the biggest impact on the Standard and Poor's 500. Whereas the sectors that have been most affected were often already weak sectors that had low valuations, right? If you look at retailers, uh, uh, clothing retailers, for example, uh, their, their market values were already very low. So their impact, you know, on the S&P 500 is, is, is very small. And then there's a lot of sectors that, um, are not that, that have been, you know, small businesses, restaurants and things like that, that are not even really represented in the S&P 500, right? So it's, what's interesting is that there's a little bit of a divide between where the employees are and where the market values are. Right. And, 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 and a lot of the companies with the largest market values don't have a lot of employees and the company where the, a lot of employees are, are companies that either are not in the S and P 500 because they're not listed, uh, or, uh, they were in sectors that didn't have high, very high valuations to begin with. Uh, and so that tends so the, so the effect on the economy will be in, in this particular situation, the effect on the economy will be quite large. But the effect on the market will be smaller because the market, as we talk about it, like the S&P 500, uh, is, 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 is made up of different companies that are, represent the broader GDP. Yeah, so that takes me to, to sort of global, global smaller business. So, you know, in that area, I want to ask a little bit about around that because, you know, you've got obviously a lot of um, small businesses in, in communities potentially struggling right now because they've had to close, starting to open again. But mm -hmm. some of them haven't had the runway in their cash flows or anything to survive. And I, and I get a lot mm -hmm. of those people reach out to me. What, what's your, your view? Again, I know it's not a, a, a watertight prediction, so I wouldn't ask you that. But for, for that type of part of the economy, which is often called the lifeblood in many ways, what, what do you mm -hmm. think is going to happen there? Well, I think what's going to happen there is the companies that were weaker before this and just, you know, barely making it, you know, are probably not going to survive. This is going to accelerate the decline of some of the weaker companies, right? Uh, we've already seen that in, 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 in retail, uh, in, in some of the large retailers, um, in the U S for example, even large ones, not just small ones, large ones, uh, you know, uh, declining bankruptcy. So, um, you know, this, this, you know, uh, an economy like this sort of accelerates the decline of weaker businesses, um, is, is typically what happens. That's, that's one thing that will happen. Second thing that will happen though is there are some businesses which are healthy, but need liquidity, right? They, you know, they, they just can't survive even, you know, six months of no, no revenues or, or very low revenues, right? And that's where, um, you know, hopefully government policy will be such that we'll be able to lend them money or provide them with some assistance that they'll be able to, to, to make it through to the other side, right? Uh, one of the things, for example, that we're advising, and we've talked to investors about this, uh, large companies, uh, who those who have very strong and healthy balance sheets, uh, one of the things that, that, that is in their best interest to do is to look out for their customers and their suppliers during this period of time, right? Because if you're a large company and your supply chain is made up of smaller companies who are at risk, um, 
you're not going to recover very quickly if your suppliers can't, you know, go out of business or aren't in a position to supply you with what you need when demand comes back up, right? So it's in the best interest of a large, a lot of companies, uh, particularly if you're, um, you know, B2B type of company, to look out in, uh, for both your customers and your suppliers during this period of time because it will help you to, 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 to come back. And it'll help your reputation. You'll have more loyalty among your customers and your suppliers, et cetera. So, um, you know, unfortunately, there will be some businesses that, that won't make it through uh, because of liquidity issues and because they can't gain that liquidity. Some of them were, were weak to begin with. Uh, there will be some that may not make it just because they can't find the financing. But hopefully, you know, the government policies and stuff will find the financing for the businesses which are which which do have the potential to survive and which have strong underlying fundamentals once we get through this. Yeah, and and, and I, it's a it's a great comment there, Tim, because I think the opposite is true. If you're a smaller business and you supply a bigger business in whatever way, there's no harm in you talking to that customer of yours and asking about how they can support you, which is great. Exactly. Exactly. That 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 they well. If they're thinking ahead, they're going to come to you to to, to make mm. sure you're okay. Um, but you know, you should definitely look out. You know, look out for them uh, uh, as well. And your and or if they're a customer, you know, if they're a customer of yours or a supplier of yours, they have they should have an interest in making sure you you make it through. Great. Well, I want to talk just about a couple of last things, if that's okay. I want to talk about investors um, and to some extent startups. But let's talk about investors first. So. If you're an investor, and that could be a private equity investor, it could be an individual investor, and you're looking kind of at, at the market as it is now, and I'm looking at it, there's, there's obviously going to be a lot of businesses that are potentially undervalued that would be ripe for acquisition. Is there any mm -hmm. any kind of any thoughts that you have around that? If you know any sectors that you think are interesting? If I was a private investor, you know those sort of areas. Of, are there any things like that that you think you know are, are worth considering during this time? Um. That's a, that that is a tough one um, because the 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 sectors that have gone down the most is a lot of uncertainty around you know their survival and a lot of that has to do with government policy which is always very unpredictable. Right? Always help. <laughs> um, so you, you you have to do you have to you know eat, you know so, so you want to think about okay so what are the things that will affect this company's ability to survive and, and why it might be uh, why it might be undervalued um and 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 if it's you know if it is a uh you know in 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 a you know the 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 the, the biggest declines are in those sectors uh where demand has just dropped off a lot right uh, various retailers uh entertainment hotels um you know parts of the travel industry, all those kinds of things, right? So really, you know, there there probably are some bargains there, uh, but you really have to do your homework uh, and figure out um, which of the companies uh, have the best chances of survival. Uh, and to some extent, you have to have an understanding of, you know, government, you know, policy in terms of which ones might, might survive and what the government actions will be uh, to help them out. Um, so that's that's one thing, um, you know. So you really you're really trying to figure out where the where the market may have may have uh, overreacted on, on the downside. Uh, well, one just to jump in uh, on that because because one of the yeah. ones that, that you mentioned, which has been a sort of hot topic for some of the things I've been looking, is travel. 
So the, the mm -hmm. general consensus is people will travel again because people like to travel, have holidays, visit relatives, all that sort of stuff. But the valuations on things like airlines have obviously, mm -hmm. you know, I think someone said the other day that I forget the number, but um, I think Zoom's valuation, as in the platform we're on today, was worth more mm -hmm. than the top 10 airline companies in the world combined, yep. something like that. Yep. I can't remember the exact statistic. Yep. So if you take something like that, you kind of think that that seems like an industry that would be worth investing in on the premise that its long-term intangibles would be quite strong. Yes. The question is, on the, and that's a good example of the, the, the conundrum that, that, that you mm. face as an, as an investor. Because on the one hand, the airlines will continue to operate and travel will come back. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But on the other hand, if they don't have enough liquidity to get from here to when the recovery recurs, right? The airline might survive, but the invest, but the equity holders may not, right? All the U.S. airlines have gone through bankruptcy at least once, right? So the airlines have survived and prospered, you know, at, at various times, but the equity holders have not always prospered, right? So you have to think there's a difference between whether, especially in the, the U.S system uh, where the bankruptcy laws allow a business to continue to operate while it's in bankruptcy and, and, and gather and get funding. Uh, so you can have situations where a business continues to operate, uh, it survives and it eventually thrives, but somewhere along the way, the shareholders didn't benefit from it. So you need to, as a shareholder, you really need to think about not just whether or not the business is going to survive, but whether the shareholders will be the ones who own it, the current shareholders will be the ones who own it when it when it survives, when it comes back, or whether it will have to go through bankruptcy to, to get there. Yeah, that doesn't and sell the, like And the airlines in particular already <laughs> experienced that operating in bankruptcy, right? Because they've already done it all within, you know, the last 10 or 15 years, right? So they know, you know, how to operate in bankruptcy. And, and, and when they've been bankrupt in the past, the consumers, you know, barely notice. Right. Uh, a bankrupt airline doesn't doesn't operate, you know, from a customer perspective, doesn't really seem that different usually from a from from, from one that's not bankrupt. No, it's a good point, particularly on the thing that, you know, I suppose the takeaway from from I suppose the last 10 minutes, 15 minutes we've been chatting is good, good companies are going to be valued well anyway. And good companies have got mm -hmm. both I suppose the short term pieces we spoke about, but also the long term part of it. And if someone's out there looking to sort of buy something which is undervalued, um, there's a reason why, <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and there's a risk quotient against that. Because because I, I, I mm -hmm. hear different statements in the market at the moment, which is like, oh, it's definitely a buyer's market. This is what some of the PE firms are saying, et cetera. But I, I don't 100% agree in that. I think it's a buyer's market on certain areas, potentially, if it's, that's in your strategy. But obviously, as you said, as you've articulated well, there's quite a lot of risk around that as well. Yeah. But I think one of the things that we have found is that, you know, we have clients who would like to buy as well, who, 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 have, who have healthy balance sheets. Um, and um, the, the part of the challenge, though, is that, you know, you have to find companies that are facing serious liquidity issues and the managers or the owners feel that they have to sell, right? Because a lot of people don't want, a lot of owners of businesses don't want to sell at these prices, right? Uh, so if they can, if they can wait it out, uh, wait till prices, till the economy recovers and prices come back, they will. There's just and that, it's like a resident, a homeowner, you know, if your house was worth, you know, $700,000 at one point, and now it's only worth 500000 
they're reluctant to sell just because they psychologically have in the mind that it was one worth once worth seven hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> CEOs, I see CEOs the same way. They don't they don't want to recognize the fact that the price now is is lower than it once was, and, and that's just life. So there there's a big reluctance, and oftentimes one of the things that drives in the, in the last the Great Recession that we had 10, 10 or more years ago, um, often there was plenty of people who were want, plenty of companies who wanted to buy. Often there was just a shortage of sellers. Uh, you know, people, you know, the CEOs, the boards, uh, the private equity owners didn't want to sell at those low prices. So uh, that that's one of the reasons why the the the, the number of transactions was much lower. Yeah. No, fascinating. I want to finish off with one last question, Tim. As I said, you've been very generous with your time today, so thank you for that. But um, I'm going to go back a little bit to where we started, if that's all right. So I get a lot of people reach out to me who are now looking at the markets. They might have, let's say, for example, they might have had a, a strong corporate career and they've lost their job recently. And they're now saying, you know what, I want to go and build my own income. I want to start something, um, those sort of things. When someone starts a business, and we're talking about mm -hmm. right at the very beginning. They've got an idea, two guys in a shed, <laughs> et cetera. Mm -hmm. And they're looking to get their first amount of money. They're trying to raise some funding, but they haven't really got mm -hmm. anything other than maybe one customer and one piece of IP, a product. How do you go mm -hmm. around evaluating, uh, putting a valuation around that for equity or for um, whatever? How does that work? Yeah, yes. Um, I, I think we go back to the idea of trying to think about um, it, it's sort of a, a combination of how big can this business, how big can it be both in terms of revenues, profits, cash flows, um, but we also have to consider what's the, you know, the chance of it succeeding or not succeeding. And we know that most of these are going to fail. Yeah. Right. So, you know, in, in some ways it's a, it's a negotiation in terms of, um, uh, cause there is no right answer. Right in these kind of situations, right? Because at the top end is okay. If the business is successful, it could be worth, you know, five hundred million dollars, let's say, in 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 a couple of years. If it's not successful, it could be worth zero, right? So there's a big range. Um, so you know, you, you know, the what you need to do is you need to first of all, uh, you need to ideally you attract multiple investors so you have some competition. Uh, you know, if you just go with the first one, uh, you'll, you'll end up with whatever price they're going to be willing to pay for you. Right. So ideally you can, you can generate some, some interest from multiple investors. And secondly, you, you really need to be able to talk about the economics of the business and why it's, it's going to be successful. And, and, and it's surprising how often people, even executives of very large companies don't do a very good job of being able to explain the economics of the business and why the business is successful, why it's going to become a certain size or why it's going to have a certain level of profit margins and return on capital. So if you can articulate that with, with good logic, you're more likely to get a better valuation. Yeah. And, I, and the word there articulation, I think is an important one because, you know, as much as, as much as it's a little bit, um, what do you call it? sensationalized the shark tanks of this world there's a lot of people buying people <laughs> so you know there's a grasp of the numbers and a grasp of the market and being able to pull that together then there's the ability mm -hmm. to tell a story to influence to create a vision and i'm sure at that stage yeah. those things become become as important well it's interesting that do you say that because there's an interesting academic paper that was written a number of years ago by uh, steve kaplan from the university of chicago and some others 
and and basically the question they posed was, do you bet on the jockey or the horse? Uh, as, and thinking about venture capital, right? And the logic came out that you basically you bet on the horse, not the jockey. And the reason for that is because if you have a great business idea and a weak management team, you can always find new managers, right? If you have a bad idea, you know, a business proposition that just, you know, customers aren't going to buy it, you have the best management team in the world and they're not going to be able to make, make a success of it, right? That's why it's so important to be able to articulate the business logic. You know, of course, you have to sell yourself, but selling yourself without you is, is, is useless if you don't have the business idea, the logic, the economics behind it that says this is going to be a, this could be a successful business. Yeah, I like that. I haven't read that paper, but I will look it up for sure. I, I think it's interesting because I see a lot of people, a lot of investors I work with, they get emotional. Um, mm -hmm. about the person they buy the person um, and then mm -hmm. a lot of the times they think well actually i can just work with this person and make the idea better as opposed yeah. to yeah. start as you said there with the horse so very good yeah you need you really need to have both of them ideally you need to have the the, yeah. the, the, the the manager who can make it happen and the idea and one without the other usually won't won't work Love it. All right. Excellent. Well, Tim, thank you very much. Is there anything that we've missed today that you'd like to share with the audience? Um, anything that you'd like to cover? I think we've gone quite deep into how we measure and manage the value of companies, which has been fantastic. No, I think, I think we've covered quite a, quite a range there. I think uh, once again, just keep the fundamental principles in mind um, that it's about, you know, how big a business can grow and what kind of return on capital it can earn. And that's ultimately what drives the value. And if you keep your, Keep your eye on those things and what drives those things, um, you know, it'll increase your chances of success. Brilliant. Okay, Tim, well, how can people reach you if they want to reach out to you? Uh, I can be reached at uh, Tim underscore Kohler, K-O-L-L-E-R at McKinsey.com. Um, and, uh, you know, we also have uh, uh, the McKinsey.com uh, website has uh, lots of our articles and publications on all, all these all kinds of topics that that, that, that might be interesting and, and, and can find me there as well. Great. We'll make sure we'll put all that into the show notes. And and your book, the seventh edition of Valuation, Measuring and Managing the Value of Companies is available late June, I believe. And I'll get it right. It's available time. late June. Yes. Um, unfortunately, because of printing capacity, uh, because of the virus, uh, the, the, <laughs> the uh, actual publication date was delayed by almost two months, even though the book's been ready for a while. Um, and I guess they don't like to, uh, bring the, uh, the, uh, electronic version out before the, uh, print edition is available. Um, so it's going to be available in late June. Um, like I said, this is the seventh edition. So, uh, we're enthusiastic about it and we've got some interesting new topics that we're talking about that are very relevant. We talk about the impact of environmental, social, and governance. We talked about the impact of digital. Um, so there's a number of new topics in there that we're talking about and how they relate to valuation as well. Brilliant. Okay. So next time we speak, it will be a million copies, not 800,000. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> if okay. not more. All right, Tim. Well, listen, thanks for your time today. It's okay. great having you on Scale Your Business. Thank you. Th thank you, Nick. I really enjoyed it. Have a good day. Bye.